Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new The National Blast podcast with Keenan Skelly. Join Keenan and guests as they blast you to a place that is certainly not boring, yet still giving you highlights from areas in cyber where key policies and legislation are needed, exist, but aren't enforced, or no one is even talking about it. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Welcome to 2022, everyone. I'm so glad that you're still here with me. This is Keenan Skelly, and this is the latest episode of The National Blast. I have an amazing woman here with me today. Absolutely amazing. Catherine Allen, um, please introduce yourself. Tell me about some of the interesting things we're going to talk about today. Well, thank you, Keenan, and thank you for asking me to be a part of this podcast. Um, I am pleased to be on and lots of interesting things to talk about. As I said, I might be a little controversial, too. Um, I'm the the, uh, CEO of uh, Shared Assessments, which is part of the Santa Fe Group. It's the kind of go-to group on third-party management. And we provide tools for assessment. We have thought leadership. We have a community of third-party professionals. We have certification programs, um, Summit that I mentioned. So our purpose has been, we run it like a member organization to really drive third-party risk management best practices. That I'm CEO of the Board Risk Committee, which is a nonprofit um, organization for corporate board directors that sit on risk committees of boards. Oh, and wow. our purpose there is to not only create a peer exchange for these uh, professionals, uh, board members, but also education and to have a help them understand what you know what 5G is about or what um, quantum computing, because that's not their norm of discussion all the time. So, and we also create best practices for uh, for them. So how did I get here? I love to say this. I, I was a major in uh, retailing and fashion design in my undergraduate. And I always thought, I thought I, I would be a designer, but I also thought it was the only way that women could be in business at that time. And at that point, there weren't that many women in business school or law schools, and it was a way to take business courses. So I did go into retailing. Then I started getting my master's degree and then worked on my doctorate at uh, GW in um, on the divestiture of AT&T, all pre-internet. Shout out to GW. You know, I love you. We always get the alumni here. Please go ahead. Uh, it's a great, great university and not just what you learn there, but the people that you sit in the classes with. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, from that, I got recruited first by CBS and then by Dun & Bradstreet to really help them think of the strategy. Again, the Internet's not here, but video text is. And there be, people are beginning to see how you combine information with technology and how there might be access at that time, Minitel in France. Um, and so I worked on the talking yellow pages at uh, Dun & Bradstreet, and then I was recruited by City to go work for them because of the information background I had um, to work on the enhanced telephone, which was wow. a telephone with a chiclet keyboard and a smart <laughs> And that got me interested in security, starting with smart car because you could not only load money onto it and use it at the metro, but you could also, it was a secure access. It said that I am who I am. And again, this is back in the 90s, and it is a period of time when 
you know, the internet is just coming in. It's not easy access in terms of the hardware that's out there. And, you know, people didn't really understand what was happening. So when I left city, I, I left to build my, or to come out to San, to move to Santa Fe from the New York area. Um, the um, financial services roundtable, actually it was called the banking roundtable at that point, bankers roundtable tried to recruit me to be CEO to set up a new organization to help the CEOs understand about these emerging technologies. And oh, I had just started the Santa Fe group. And I said, you know, I just, I, I've, you know, I'm the rainmaker for this group and we're doing consulting. We were doing consulting on e-commerce and smart cards and so forth for large financials and large in the postal service. But I said, I, I can't do that. And they said, well, why don't you use the Santa Fe group as will outsource to you and you will help us develop the strategy for the CEOs of the 100 largest financial institutions on what's going to happen with e-commerce what you know so this is 1997 that's and, crazy and, I mean, amazing and was, crazy but wow was well at that time no first of all there was no ceo of a major bank that had any technology background and in fact their cios were in we used to call them in the back room you know they they did not report to the ceo they had very little access to the board or anyone so the first thing we did is we set up an advisory board of the cios and we got them actively involved because guess what? They got to sit next to their CEO and have some vision of what's happening. So we created best practices in areas from privacy to cybersecurity, to fraud, to money laundering, identity theft, and 9-11 happened. And pre-9-11, we were focused more on e-commerce things, but after 9-11, definitely to information security, money laundering. And that's how our connection with DHS, we helped set up the ISACs, we helped set up the FIBI and physic with treasury we helped set up uh, many of the rules that dhs had around cybersecurity at that time oh, so yeah. then fast forward i came back to my company at the santa fe group and reinvented it as a third-party risk um, uh, organization and that's when we started building all these best practices i just sold the shared assessments uh, company to one trust uh, Congratulations. In, uh thank that's you exciting. thank you it is exciting. I'm staying on for two years as a consultant um, to get the new CEO onboarded and really to be a uh, evangelist. But it's fabulous because they've given us uh, resources. We're hiring more people. We're expanding globally, and it really is a good fit. And they're keeping us independent, so it's you know we have many um, many of our members are competitors to One Trust, but we Kabir Bardet, I can't say enough good things about him. He what he says he'll do, he follows through with, and with great integrity. And that was why it was a good mix. It was a strategic buy for for us. So anyway, so I'm uh, right now I'm involved, uh, you know, with the shared assessments. I'm involved with growing the board risk committee. Just did an event with BlackRock uh, at the end of the year uh, for board members. I'm, I sit on corporate boards, and oftentimes I'm the cyber or technology director in helping them. And I usually chair or sit on the risk committees of boards. And um, but I also am on nonprofit boards. And of course, there we. I just got off a nonprofit meeting for the Museum Foundation, and guess what? We were talking about risk and cybersecurity Absolutely. and ransomware. You know. So I'm all ready for today's conversation. So I'm, what actually, I'm also on the board of uh, several nonprofits that are cyber specific, um, the Women's Society of Cyber Jutsu and also RACIS. 
um, cyber, which is focusing on getting more than 4% of Hispanics and Latinos into cybersecurity, because that number is ridiculous. And then yeah. also uh, Safe Escape, uh, which helps victims of domestic violence by um, giving resources to them for free so that they can um, tighten up their networks, get more secure, understand if they're being tracked, understand if there's something on their computer or in their network that is, um, you know, kind of tracking them, but also physical security. And I absolutely love it. it that's one of my favorite. The, the, so we have amazing. <laughs> we have lots to talk about because those are areas of interest because you can track cybersecurity to uh, you know uh, sexual um, uh, sex trafficking, human trafficking oh, issues, ransomware, even Bitcoin. Most of Bitcoin today is still for fraud or, or money laundering and things like that. Unfortunately, it'll eventually be. A different story. But anyway, today we're supposed to be talking about legislative things, which, as I said, do not ask me what Bill 2341 or whatever it might be. But oh. I have some general observations, and then I could talk about some, some specifics. So tell me what you want to talk about. What what would interest you and your, your uh, listeners? Absolutely. So, you know, the past year, I would say in 2021 specifically, there were so many bills that were brought up for cybersecurity, for privacy, for risk, for creating new agencies, for sending money to old agencies to try and revitalize them. And, you know, what's interesting is if, if you look at just the sheer numbers of legislation overall compared to, you know, anything else, it's probably less than 2%. But for cybersecurity people, for information security people, it was a lot. A lot got done last year. But a lot has also happened in terms of, you know, um, the kind of attacks that we've been suffering. Uh, you know, right now, Russia and Ukraine are, are getting a little bit hectic and kind of tightening up. And CISO has been great about putting out guidance to make sure you're looking at your systems because we may get ramped up attacks and things of that nature. And that's all great. But if you could have some kind of cyber legislation that was in place that isn't already, what would that be? Would it be for financial services? Would it be related to ESG or privacy? How, how would you shape that? And what kind of um, guidance would you give to lawmakers to, to make sure that whatever that is, is going to make sense and work? Well, first of all, there's something out there that might be used as a model. The EU has its Digital Operational Resilience Act. It's a, a proposal that's going to be discussed this year in the parliament. And it's pretty comprehensive. It's focused, it's industry-specific context. It has uh, levels of what you can do and in, in targeted at FIs. Um, and I think it, it's a good example of what a model legislation might be. But in addition to that, it would whatever you have to have, it has to be doable and managed. As you well know, many small nonprofits, small companies, medium, they, they can't afford the CISO. And even if they could, the talent drain, right now there's, I think, something like 20 jobs for every CISO that's out there. Oh, you yeah, know. but I, even not a CISO level. I mean, when we're talking about small businesses, you're lucky if they have a sysadmin, let alone a security person, let alone somebody in the C-suite dedicated to that. It's just, it, it, it's kind of sad and shocking, but 100% uh, agree in dealing with government in my past and, and small organizations and owner operators. It's hard to do security when you have a bottom line and a limited number of people. 
Right. So that's so whatever comes out has to be done almost proportionally. And we all know the cyber attackers go after the weakest link. So oftentimes they will go after a small or medium sized business because they know they have less protocols in place to go after a larger player. So in some ways, the government and larger players have to help those smaller players up their game. So that's one piece. So it, it has to be realistic. It has to be consistently across all industries because, again, we know we're de- I'm you know we're dependent on the the uh, cable operators, on the internet providers, on the telecommunications services. If they don't have to meet certain requirements and they're down, then we're all down. Yes. So we have to understand our vendors and the critical infrastructures, and and they have to be monitored and have to go along too. Now here's where I get controversial. Uh-oh. I would add the- I don't mean, uh-oh. You guys totally know I love controversy, so I can't wait for this. Go ahead. <laughs> so I would add the software providers, the systems providers, the hardware providers have really got to up their game because it's usually, let's get it out there as fast as we can without appropriate testing, without really seeing where the holes are, and then they patch it later. Well, that's where we have a lot of our vulnerabilities. So whatever they impose, whatever legislation or regulation is upon a user group, like financial services or healthcare or retail, it's also got to be put onto providers of that technology. And we haven't seen that so much. And part of that's because of the big lobbying firms in Washington in the tech providers who've kept that away. And so it's been, I've I've seen more punitive actions on the users of technology than I have the providers of it. So there's my controversy number one. There'll be some more coming. Well, let's unpack that for a second, because, you know, uh, living in DC, you, you, you're hyper aware of everything that's going on uh, politically. And, and so in technology, particularly when, uh, you know, when um, the CEO of Meta shows up uh, for congressional testimony or when uh, Jeff Bezos came out or when anybody, any of the CEOs come out and they, they kind of talk through Congress about privacy and security and things of that nature, all of them have been slapped on the wrist repeatedly. Like, for years, for years and years and years, you have to tighten up your privacy, you have to tighten up your security, you have to get better at this. Um, and, and yet you take a company that's making billions of dollars annually and you give them a $2 million fine. So what? What are they gonna do? What are they gonna change? Which is really interesting. You know, um, Twitter this week had uh, some, some interesting uh, turnover of employees. There were two individuals that were brought on in 2020 that were cybersecurity specific and, um, and they, were, they were kind of shifted. And mm-hmm. it really is interesting when you think about it, if a company like Twitter is, is taking some of the best and brightest from the community and they're saying, we don't really need this right now, is that kind of a focus of companies or is, is that in, indicative of their focus to pay less attention to security? I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that either. Because, and I wish it were that they're looking for more to, to do a better job. But again, you have to look at risk rewards and you have to look at where the money flows. And you know, like you said, a $2 million fine is nothing. So it's going to have to be, uh, so one thing is it has to be consistent 
across the provider and the user community. It has to be global. We cannot, in isolation in the U.S., create standards and and you know best practices if they're not practicing them in the U.K. or in in Asia or in South America. So there either need to be bilateral or some kinds of negotiations so we agree around some best practices. And actually, Microsoft has um, they've they've had some people internally working with um, CS, uh, CSIS, even looking at the feasibility of that. So where maybe large corporations would all agree to adhere, even no matter what their industry, I mean, their uh, state boundaries are around security, because the hacks, as you know, happen from anywhere and they can take over somebody's network in Ireland and, and then, you know, do something bad in the United States, but it actually came from the North Koreans. And so that's a piece of it. And then I think another controversial thing is we have to recognize that the, the strategy of Russia and North Korea and um, Iran and, you know, and understand Russia doesn't have the economic power to beat us, but they do have people smart about cyber. So they, we know that they're in some of our critical infrastructures. We know that if you took down a power plant, I was on the El Paso Electric Board. We had, um, you know, I can't tell you how many attempts to get into our systems. Fortunately, we had a really good cyber efforts and, and uh, we're doing a great job on that. But if you take down that, that's gonna disrupt the economy, disrupt, create anarchy in a way. That's how Russia is going to fight us. That they they can't, they don't, can't have the boots on the ground, so to speak. Um, and so I worry about that. I worry about our water, our power, our gas, our, um, you know, all the infrastructure that could be shut down that would cause economic and or structural harm in the United States. And I think they've done it before and we'll do it again. So it means Congress has to understand that. They have to understand the strategies. And this leads me to another controversial thing is I was invited a few years ago, actually it's probably more than a few years ago, West Point brought together members of the military and some of us from the private sector to talk about cybersecurity. And was there were Jack not Voltaic? that many Pardon? Was this Jack Voltaic? I think so. I'm trying to think. I think, okay, I think it is. And I actually, uh, at a previous company, I, I helped stand up the first Jack Voltaic in New York. Um, which was a lot of fun. And I, I just saw today that the, they've announced the, the fourth one coming this year. So that's pretty exciting. So great, it, might great conference. Been, it might've been, but what was the, the aha for me was to hear the military people talk about the concerns about the typical military industrial complex who doesn't really want to see money go to cyber warfare because then you might need might not need as many missiles or boats, you know, ships or whatever it might be. It was all about money. Oh, yeah. And so they were starving. is absolutely crazy. The fact that, that we give so much to the bombs and bullets these days when our biggest threat, and this has been called the biggest threat by two presidents now, <laughs> three presidents, the biggest threat to our society is definitely cybersecurity. So I could totally agree with that when it comes to budgeting appropriations. Really, and again, I don't think Congress is there. I don't think they really understand that, you know, because of, again, the lobbying and the 
you know, local constituencies and, and whatever it is, but we've got to step back. I mean, I fear the Chinese, but I admire the Chinese because they do strategic planning. They think out 10 years, 25 years, 50 years. We don't do that. We, you know, maybe it's our stock market and we only think in quarterly returns, but we need to think more strategically in our legislation about the impact on a global basis, but and who the players need to work together and that cyber is our biggest threat. And so that means, what does that mean? It means you need science. You need people like you with your kind of background. That uh, that's really interesting. You know, talking about the agencies that need to be involved and who the uh, involved and who the players are. Um, you know, there were several bills that were put out for internet reporting over the course of 2021 and none of them were passed, thankfully, because none of them addressed all the issues, but What's interesting about that is it, none of those bills actually really adjudicated how many people, how many government organizations have to be involved in that process. Because if you look at critical infrastructure, just critical infrastructure, there are how many sectors and each of them have different re regulating agencies and they have you know, different reporting requirements for different types of data that they have to go through you know, the FTC and the SEC and Nuclear Regulatory Commission and, 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 and. So everything that came out was very broad and said, you know, it has to go through CISA, that's what you're going to get. But that's not how that works. That, that's not how business works. <laughs> In America, you know, there are so many different facets uh, that are tied into different pieces of the government that it, it's just too much. So that's one, of, that's one of the things I'm really pushing for this year is incident reporting legislation that actually makes sense and covers all critical infrastructure, covers all DOD, covers all of the things that are really uh, critical and, and important for us. Yeah, and, and to come to a centralized place. But that, that's another one of my controversial things. We have way too many agencies and they're all not invented here, not working together. And then some have power, but have no money. And again, I say, follow the money. So then you go back to who has the most money and they're going to end up with the most say, and are they thinking right, you know, and thinking right about cyber. So I, I, I just, I don't even know how to do it because members of the Congress are voting on things that they don't really understand. And, and I'm not being critical. They have so many things on their plate and their staffers do too. So it's impossible to say, you know, you must know about, you know, more in more detail about cybersecurity, but we've got to figure a way to have a neutral body that's trusted by everybody that can have the experts that can be the resource for I members. I like that of idea. That's interesting. And I'll give you, I'll just give you an example. Our mutual friend Dan introduced me to a congressman that was sitting on the Homeland Security Committee. Uh, this was uh, no, a year and a half ago. It was when Trump was still president. And he was told, and it was right after there was the uh, Iran, we had the, the scuffle with Iran and we were concerned about them retaliating. And, and he was, they were briefed at the Homeland Security Committee that um, to not worry about Iran because they didn't know anything about cybersecurity and they weren't very sophisticated in that area. And so Dan <laughs> had to brief him to say, well, quite the opposite. And, you know, and I explained how a small country like Iran can use cyber attacks as a way to bring down the economies and so forth. And I said, I don't know who told you. And he would, I didn't ask him and he didn't tell me, but I said, that's an example of your whole committee being briefed in the wrong, totally the opposite of what they should know. And, and this is so actually, I'm going to jump on this one. And all my yeah. listeners are like, she's going to go, she's going to get on the pedestal right now. I know it. 
you're right, I am. Um, so when it comes to that, I, it, I'm heartbroken to see that Representative Langevin uh, from Rhode Island is not going to be running for re-election. He is without question one of the most educated when it comes to technology and cybersecurity. Outside of that, there are only a handful that truly understand technology and security um, in a way that's meaningful. So, you know, when I talk to people about, and I talk to staffers, like I talk to, um, you know, congressional folks, when they say that this is what they did to gather the information, they're doing like open source Google internet research, or they're talking to this massive tech council of CEOs who are, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Microsoft. And I love that. I think that's wonderful, but they need to be talking to the people many, many layers down in that, right? The rest of the community that's doing this physically on a day-to-day -day basis. Otherwise, it makes no sense. And that's why I really, and I tell people this all the time, reach out to your own congressman. And I, 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 definitely the most annoying uh, constituent of my congressman, I'm sure, um, because I'm always asking, what are we doing? What are you doing? How are we making this better? Where, how is the money coming in? Um, because it's important. And everybody needs to do that. Everybody that has any kind of care about information security or cybersecurity, you need to reach out to your congressman and say, or congresswoman and say, look, what are you doing? You're not doing enough. Let me introduce you to people who do this and can help educate you. Uh, it's just critical. Totally agree with you. And it, you may be aware that Joyce Burkhardt, we've several years, we've taken women CISO yes, up yes. the hill and met with members of Congress or their staffers, one, to say, we're here to help you. You'll call us and we can answer questions, but two, to have us brief, because it turns out, I think it was like 92% of the people that brief on cybersecurity are men. And there's a lot of women out there that are knowledgeable about cybersecurity. And so that was part of what we're trying to do. I'm lucky in New Mexico, we have a fabulous delegation and they are concerned about cybersecurity. Even Senator Heinrich, he's an engineer, He's not necessarily an IT person, but they, he and uh, Senator Ben Ray Lujan and our uh, representative, both of our representatives are people that are curious and understand it. And part of it's because we have the national labs here and have to have yeah. you know, higher level security and so forth. But, you know, I, I, it's like I said, I, I, I don't even, it's hard to even imagine how you, but I just feel like there needs to be a body that actually needs to be global trusted experts who serve as a resource for their various parliament, congressmen, or whatever it might be to help develop this overall strategy around cyber and cyber warfare. And until we can do something similar, I, 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 the, the next best thing I think is what Microsoft had talked about is having these bilateral relationships between large corporations across state lines that would help you know, educate about best practices. There is one bill that's kind of interesting up on the Hill. Um, it's a K through 12 Cybersecurity Act. And it's about, but it's subtle. It's about requiring education at K through 12 level, which is where you need to hit these kids to understand it. But in that is also best practices and ideas around medical records, about social security, about family information, but it's all in the context of education. But it might be a way, just like in the environmental movement, that started with kids. It was kids coming home to their parents saying, you know, why are we drinking out of plastic bottles? Or why are we, you know, using so much paper? Or why are we, let's turn down the energy. If we could help kids 
understand cybersecurity and bring it home, that might help educate their parents. Oh, preach, preach, preach. I am right there with you. I, I've worked for several companies now where the entire focus is really, you know, getting everybody to understand uh, cybersecurity. And the only way that you can do that is if everybody can participate. So you have kids and playing with their grandparents and showing them things. That's how we, that's how we make a movement. That's how we change the future. Um, totally agree. And there's so many great organizations that have, have jumped in there uh, with different concepts about how to do that. But that piece of legislation is really interesting. And I know uh, which one you're talking about. I think it's important um, that the people who kind of have worked on that piece of legislation and another piece that I think is coming from the same group uh, when it comes to extended education, I think it's important that those people themselves have the same level of education that they're trying to put into K through 12. So that's my controversial opinion here is, and there are, there are things that are starting to happen. There's a, there's a thing called um, hack the capital uh, that is put on every year. And it's really interesting because it brings in the staffers, it brings in the, the members of Congress and actually walks them through different cybersecurity technologies, uh, new and emerging tech, things of that nature. We need to have more of those. I mean, that needs to be like a quarterly experience, in my opinion, because the more and more we get into this, you know, we talked about privacy a little bit, and you you mentioned you know coordinating with other countries and things of that nature. GDPR is is coming up for round two, and we still haven't passed meaningful privacy legislation in this country, and it's difficult because we're very opinionated. We're Americans. We like to do what we want, and you can't tell me you can't tell me what to do. But at the same time, if we want to, if we want to play this game, then we have to step up and we have to get to the point where we admit that people's personal information is important and it should be secured and it should be up to that person, not up to Apple or Twitter yeah. or Facebook. It should be up to me. So this goes back to that lobbying thing that we were talking about earlier. Totally agree with you, because I think, in fact, GDPR is a good model for, and California certainly is patterned off of that in some other states, but it's, as a business, it's hard to do, meet the different requirements in different states. And so if we could have one federal law that would supersede the, the state laws, I think it would be better for business and it would also be better in, in really protecting um, uh, consumers. And I think, you know, and it's I interesting. It would be better for our global, you know, um, participation and everything that's happening with cybersecurity right now. You know, at the G7 last year, cybersecurity was a very big point of focus with Biden coming out basically and saying that gray space operations are now authorized when it comes to Russia. Um, yep. You know, we have the opportunity to build really strong cyber alliances. And I know I, with all due credit, I know that Jen Easterly at CISA and before her Chris Krebs have done a lot to help move that ball forward. But I think okay. that where we're still lacking, what we're still missing is that legislation that actually drives it home. Yep. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And another area that I relate back to this whole privacy, because frankly, privacy and security are interrelated because it's security breaches are what disrupt the privacy of people. And, and, and as you well know, medical records are much more valuable than financial because they're hard to, to bring back and lots of things they could do with them. Um, but the other is the ESG 
regulation. The U.S. is behind on this. I mean, we have some efforts, I'd say more so regulation. Can you talk efforts. about what the ESG is a little oh. bit for the listeners who may not know the... So E stands for environmental, S stands for social, and G stands for governance. And generally in this pot of things are everything from climate change to uh, sustainability, to DEI and talent management, you know, because we're in a labor shortage right now. And, and it's, it's, it really relates to the social responsibility of an institution. And what's interesting is it's, uh, it's moving. I will tell you, every board I'm on, every board education thing, ESG is a hot topic um, because of either regulatory requirements coming down the pike and the SEC included, um, or the UK. The UK and Europe have actually led in this area. But what's really driving it, which I think is wonderful, is the employees, the millennial and Gen X and Gen Zs in their corporations who say, I want to work for a company that has a mission. I want oh, to know yeah. what a company is doing around these issues. And so that's also driving it. So it's a it's a case where both regulation and oversight and really consumer, your employee, stakeholder um, uh, efforts are there. And I, I, I again, yeah, I'll be able to- Employees don't believe in what you're doing and they don't see you as yeah. an organization doing good things. Why would you want to work for them? That exactly. makes perfect sense. And I'm, I'm so happy to see that coming about, you know, um, and you know, remember, being a CEO, your job, your literal actual job is to take care of your employees. That's it. That's you it. Take care of your employees, and, they will take care of the customer. And, and, it's, and it's what boards are thinking about today. So I just have two little anecdotes, which I think are funny about, it was last year, Jamie Dimon and the Business Roundtable came out with this grand proclamation that we should be thinking of stakeholders, not just shareholders. And all the women board members I know all said, well, duh, that, you know, women have been thinking about this all along. Your stakeholders are 40 years. <laughs> exactly. Your employees, your vendors, your customers are as important as but your wow, shareholders. That's groundbreaking. <laughs> I, it was, but anyway, but the other thing that is uh, it, real telling, and I think important um, I'm, uh, on the women corporate directors, we try to get more women on the corporate boards and do education and stuff. But anyway, we did a research study with Pearl Myers and kind of started it before COVID and, and we're asking for what leadership skills people were looking for, either in a CEO or board members. And they were things like, you know, operational experience and financial know-how and blah, blah, blah. We had to stop it. And then we started again, sort of in the middle of COVID, totally, totally different answers. They have five things. It was empathy, it was being able to pivot quickly, being able to make decisions with you know, ambiguous information, empowering the team and articulating a vision and not audibly, but getting people to go along with your vision because you brought them along. All kind of soft skills and harder to teach in a way or learn than the, the I mean, you can, but some people have it naturally. Oh, but especially, you know, right now, this, this exact moment in time is so interesting for this specifically because we have these companies that were started 60, 50, 40 years ago, right? That was a, a very different time. It was a very different time in terms of what it meant to have a job. It was a very different time in terms of what it meant 
um, for you to get paid and, and what your compensation look like. And maybe there's only one person, the, the, the male that's the primary breadwinner. I mean, it was a different world entirely. So when you think about that, and you're starting to see these new generations come in, they're starting to say this is really important. But I can I can still hear in the back of my head, you know, some former bosses that I've had back in the day who, who would say, why you should be happy that you even have a job, right? Why, why are you talking right now? Like, yeah. do what you're told. It's a job. It's not meant to be fun. But I'm so glad, I'm, I'm really ecstatic, actually, <laughs> that that is starting to change because that is how we change the world. That is how we become really remarkable is by empowering our people to do their best and letting them uh, tell us how we can be better. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's and it's a new way. I mean, I think we're, COVID has many bad things to it, but it has some really good things. And we learned that we could work remotely productively. We learned that people could live from anywhere and, and, be, and you can get talent from anywhere. We learned what was important to us in many ways, but we also learned about, we all have to have empathy. We have to understand, you know, the per, your employee who's has two kids at home and their school just canceled, you know, school for the day and they're trying to keep them, you know, busy. And, and I mean, it's just, I love this, this trend um, of, of acceptance in zoom calls where it's okay that your child comes and sits on your lap or your dog jumps up on the table, like the dog goes in the back and (laughs) we are human beings first and foremost, and we live lives. And if you take care of those lives and you preserve the right to have that life, then, oh my God, you're going to get so much more loyalty and efficacy out of every employee. I, yes. It, oh, but yes, well, women have been saying this for years. <laughs> I, I, it, it's, it, well, it's interesting. The research we did at WCD, there are two specific areas that women think differently than men. One is we do tend to look at stakeholders uh, rather than just shareholders. We tend to, um, you know, look at all of the people that are impacted. And then we tend to look at, and this is very valuable for the future, we tend to look at risks um, in a holistic manner. We don't just, where men tend to look at, we got a financial risk, let's go kill it. And then we'll deal with the human resources. We see the interrelationship the, between them. We also see case cascading risks because you have a, I don't know, a attack that then becomes a privacy risk, then becomes a, a employee issue, an operations. I mean, there's all kinds of things. So women see that, and that's how risks are today and are going to be in the future, increasingly complex. And that's oh. where cyber comes back in, because cyber is the basis for manipulating data, Absolutely. changing data, everything. It's, it's everything. It's your water. It's your electricity. It's, your, it's literally everything. And I, I get really frustrated when people, uh, you know, kind of downplay the importance of cyber. And I, I say, you know, that computer that you're on right now, doing your job, your entire job, and where your kids are going to school right now, that's not a thing. That's not important. What would you do if you didn't have that? If you couldn't have any of these accesses that you have, if you didn't have your Xbox and your iPhone and all of the technology that you have in your home, on your person, what would you do? Well, now imagine that is a reality because that is exactly what's at stake. Yep, yep. And ransomware, you know, the ransomware has increased by 800% in this last year. And they're going after individuals and small businesses. And, you know, if you're, you know, again, the more we work remotely, the more we're dependent upon, like today, when I thought I wasn't going to have the internet, I was going to, my backup was my phone uh, uh, to use that. But, 
you you see how dependent we are on it. And so I'm going to go back and short answer yes to cybersecurity legislation, but with those qualifications, yes to privacy legislation because they are you can't, I don't think you should be looking at one without the other and the impact on them. And third is to really understand ESG and how, because that's where the societal climate change, and I give you just an example, you know, this kind of uh, um, uh, Bitcoin, everybody wants to be in the Bitcoin business. And then when you look at how much energy it takes to create that, then you're saying, do you know, is that right? You've, you've got to look at the unintended consequences of some of the things that oh, are yeah. out. You better put your Bitcoin mining on the moon because we don't have room for that here. Like we're, we're already struggling. Uh, yeah. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are really fascinating to me for a lot of reasons. I'm sure they are to you too, being in the financial sector and having that background. What do you think about of that going forward? Do you think it's going to continue to have success or that it will start to wane over time? I'm just curious. So blockchain is fabulous. The underlying technology and you see it. Ooh, ooh, all my InfoSec people just went, wait, what? <laughs> but please go yeah. ahead. <laughs> okay because it's an underlying technology that today can be used in inventory management, can be used in supply chain management. There's a lot of uses that are very valuable for it. What I, and I, I do think we'll have cryptocurrency in the, in the future. I mean, we've got all the banks are sort of investing and trying to understand it. But to me, not until you have some backing for it, because you just saw the Bitcoin, I don't know what it is today, but I don't invest in it, but you know, went down, it's in half of what it was. It's oh, yeah. this was so an epic. different than gold or, or other you know, things, it, and, but it's even less secure because it's not even physical, it's just this numbers in a computer and nobody really knows how it is comes about. So it could be one super fraud and, and some of it is, and, and certainly today, most of the use today by Bitcoin is by, I would say, less than reputable people for ransomware, for sex trafficking, for other things. That said, I think we will have cryptocurrency in the future once we figure out how to make it stabilized and how it, you know, it may not be against the US dollar, it may be against some, you know, pool of dollars of stable uh, Western or uh, Chinese economies that then back it up. Because you've got to have no, something. Really, I'm going to interrupt here. So it's really interesting to me that, that you mentioned China. Um, as you know, or may or may not know, China recently uh, put a ban on cryptocurrencies. Um, and Russia is in line to do the same thing. And it's very interesting to me that a lot of the criminal and nation state, you know, cybersecurity threat actors that we deal with the most come from those kind of regions. Um, and it's interesting if you look at it from a perception of control, right? If you want to continually try to control your population, then you need to take away every possible opportunity they have to move money, right? Because if you don't know what's going on with the everybody's money and how they interact and what they do, then you can't possibly have control, right? right. You have certain amounts of control with legislation. You have certain amounts of control with dictatorship. That you know all of these things. But this level of control is is very interesting to me in countries that are looking for complete social control. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Actually, I might do a whole podcast on that. We're going to do a whole podcast on that. Somebody I think it'd be, 
Yeah. And, and, but I tell you what you should do a podcast on, cause it just blows my mind is metaverse that, you know, that I, I, and I'm not a gamer, so I'm not, you know, I'm really old for this, but all these, you know, artificial lives and, and the, uh, all of the NFTs. And I mean, it's just okay, amazing. So I got to jump on this. So last season I had uh, Suchi Pahi and, uh, and another guest that came on and we talked about AR, VR and XR and kind of how all of those things, when you look at from a security perspective, how scary that really is. Um, so there's a second episode that we're going to do very soon about meta and about what that actually looks like. And it's really interesting to me because um, I'm a nerd, I'm a super nerd. And uh, there was this uh, follow on TV show for um, Battlestar Galactica and uh, like in the 90s or 2000, it was called Caprica. And the whole concept was basically creating this double digital image of this guy's daughter and putting her out there into this digital metaverse basically, and all of the problems that come along with that. And it touched on security, it touched on privacy, it touched on all of these things. So it's fascinating to me that we're now actually looking at that as a thing, as something for entertainment. It's also kind of scary because I don't like, I don't think I want to live in the ready player one world, right? <laughs> I'm not, I don't think I'm ready for that. Um, but, but our grand, my grandkids, you know, may, but it scares me because they don't know what they're giving up. I, I, worry, I look at it at the security point of view, you know, and not deep fakes. I mean, today on your phone, you can get an app to make your dog look like it's saying, hi, Kathy, when are you coming home? I'm ready to eat or something like that. That technology is the same thing that can make my mouth say I'm a Nazi. Oh, yeah. and I, I have an yeah. app that make that takes my face and puts it on Scarlett Johansson's body. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not bad, but scary. <laughs> it's it's scary. scary. It, it is. The um uh what was I was, I was just gonna say uh, I've got another person I'll connect you to, Edie Weiner, good friend of mine, who has the future hunter. She's a futurist and she it works for large corporations in just talking about the future and she's always like 10 15 years out and it blows your mind but fabulous but she has a lot to say about meta meta metaverse and things like that so she might be a good person to have on one I of your would love to talk to her i would love to talk to her because i'm i'm a, a big fan of gamification uh for learning i'm a big fan of gamification in general i i do play games all y'all listeners know that i'm a super nerd and i love call of duty and oh that's gonna be another episode microsoft you cannot mess up you cannot mess up call of duty i just can't that's right that's right they're big acquisition <laughs> I, I, I you're gonna laugh at me but i am gonna have to uh close pretty soon because we have this fabulous place called 10,000 Waves here. It's a spa, has the best massages and hot tubs on the side of the hill. And my husband has made a commitment for us to go there tonight. And so okay, we've got to sounds in about five minutes. Super jealous. You don't have to come out Saturday and then you can go there. Definitely. There you go. I'm in for that 100%. Okay, well, we're not going to keep you too much uh, longer, but thank you so much for coming on. It was a great conversation and I'd love to have you back. Uh, Catherine Allen, this has been the latest episode of The National Blast. Thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The National Blast podcast with Keenan Skelly. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. 
If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.